And today we have not one but two interviewees. We've got Chris Kinchin-Smith and Morris Tenenhouse, who are founder directors and now directors of the Friends of Lincoln Hillfields Community Interest Company. And they're going to tell us all about this rewilding project, this environmental project that's been happening around Bath and sort of what's the different methods that they've discovered and are employing and what inspired them to do this. Chris and Morris, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, good morning. So can you tell us a bit about Friends of Lincoln Hillfields? Um, sort of how did it get started? What's the history of it? We were formed in July 2020 and we started operations uh, on what is a 10-acre site um, in October 2020, which was COVID year. Come back to that, the significance of that, with a very strong volunteer base. And we got a license from uh, Bath and North East Somerset Council to manage and enhance the biodiversity of this beautiful site, which is on a hilltop just to the south of the city centre, uh, overlooking the wonderful Lincoln Vale and the uh, the vast skyline to the south of the city. Lovely. So, what does the what is the Friends of Lincoln Hill, Hill Fields? If you were to to explain it to someone in sixty seconds, what is it? It's um, a group of volunteers that uh, are. Um, dedicated to a fairly small area of, of hillside uh, and we decide through a, a, a smaller group uh, what we're going to do. Um, our, our main goals are to maintain public access because there are three um, public footpaths in the area and um, to enhance biodiversity. And and, and sort of what was what was happening on the space before you took over in was it 2020 you said what was happening what was happening to the space before then right. the site was um, saved from development in 1938 before the second world war when there was an application to build about 160 houses on the site it's former farmland it was grazing land part of originally what was 100 acres on the top of uh, this 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 hilltop site um, but 10 acres were saved by the Secretary of State in order to preserve the beautiful um, pu well, public access on what is a very beautiful area. But they, then the Second World War intervened and council didn't really know what to do with it. So it's been let out for grazing ever since either um, horses or cattle between then and uh, when we took over in uh, 2020. And um, in order to really, as Morris says, enhance the biodiversity, but while maintaining its wild nature. Our, our vision is, we call it our wild hilltop paradise. It's been a very well-kept secret for most of the last hundred years or more, in spite of having the footpaths across it. There's local people who know it, but we're, we're keen to, to, to publicise it more widely, which is one of the reasons I think we're talking to you this morning, Shona. We think it's a very, very special and beautiful place. And uh, without the cattle, and without the horses, it's actually much better, much easier to really bring out the uh, the wildflowers, the, the birds, the bees, the butterflies, the beetles, and uh, uh, as I say, uh, really turn it into a paradise. And I mean, it sounds absolutely gorgeous. I want to come visit right now, and that is so lovely that you that there's public footpaths going through, and members of the public can enjoy it. I mean, what sort of inspired you to? to start this in the first place because setting up a community interest company it's you know it's sort of it is quite a big job it does take up quite a bit of time 
Well, when we when we originally uh, found out from the council that they were going to let the land, um, we called a meeting of five community organisations to see if they were interested in managing the land. Um, and the first meeting was really, uh, would you be prepared to put any money into this? And they all agreed they would, a small amount of money. Um, and what we wanted to do was take it away from being either farmland or maybe um, horses for a few, a few people to being basically a wild park in a sense. Um, and it's an ideal opportunity uh, that we just couldn't couldn't resist, really. Um, and the the thing that that astounded us was the amount of interest that people had almost right from the start. And we were inundated with offers of help, volunteers, money, um, and it, so it was really like kicking an open door. That's. I, 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 it did take us two years to persuade the council that we were a credible organisation to take it on. Um, not not helped by the with a local election at the time, a change of control. So we had to re-establish relationships. And it was the, the backing from the resident associations that I think more than anything gave us credibility. And the fact we were willing to take the trouble to form a community interest company and really provide a structure, which is not just in terms of the discipline of doing that, but also trying to give the project real permanence so it can never never again be returned to just grazing land. It really will be very special public open space. So we have a, a three-month rolling license. We don't have a lease, um, which enables us to walk away or the council to walk away. Um, and in the three years that we've been operating, I think it becomes less and less likely that um, that's going to happen because we've got more credibility with the council. We've got a lot more support from local people, a lot of whom just want to walk through the space they they don't actually volunteer but we we have a large number of dog walkers and leisure walkers and generally when we're working we have people coming up and thanking us and saying how much they enjoy the space we always try and make make sure they are aware of the fact they could volunteer and some do um but it's it's the fact that we're rooted in the community that gives us the strength to know that we can we can continue with this for for indefinitely i suppose it's also the volunteer input is now so well established. We've clocked up more than 5,000 hours of volunteer input time in the last three years, which is oh, wow. phenomenal input. Makes it very easy for us to raise money if ever we need to, because we say we provide the labour. All we need is a small amount of money to, to invest in tools and equipment, um, in stone for improving the footpaths. Um, so the, the, the project really has got sustainability and momentum in its own now. And that's, yeah, and having that amount of public support, as you say, hopefully means that if ever anyone were to try and do something different with the site, the public outcry would be so great that hopefully, you know, people would see that that was a political suicide to try that. That's um, what we're banking on. <laughs> so. What what do the volunteers what do they do? So um yeah, so they're obviously repairing footpaths. Um what else are they doing on the space to sort of uh, maintain it or develop it? Well, in terms of time, um the single largest um occupation, I suppose, is mowing. Um we mow to the um to the purpose mainly of of restoring the wildflowers in the meadows. Now the meadows have been great for a long time, and so they are 
excessively fertile. So our, our method is to use something called a scythe mower, um, which is um, a reciprocating mower. It's not like the, the garden mower you might expect. And we cut the grass at um, different times, depending on the state of the flowering of the wildflowers. Uh, so we wait until they have set their seed. Um, and then we cut and remove by hand um, all of the, what we cut. And we uh, take it to us to the side of the fields. So the idea is we're reducing the fertility year on year. Uh, year. And the idea will be that at some point um, it will be much more conducive to producing wildflowers and um, that will take us most probably three three months or so um, we will cut parts of fields we will cut whole fields it really will depend on the state of the the weather um, the state of the growth of the of the of the um, sward itself and it is very labor intensive the mower is very efficient but for every one person mowing you need up to eight people raking just with uh, you know wide plastic rakes, it's very good exercise. We we say it's much better, better occupation than a gym gym membership. People do keep coming back because we can already see the impact it's having on the the quality of the grass and indeed the the wildflowers. And in the summer we have evening sessions because it's often too hot during the day, and we have a, a Wednesday evening session, which I think is the most popular thing we do. Mm. Um, and so there's a great camaraderie of of cutting grass. I know it's hard to believe that haymaking could be fun, <laughs> but it really is. Um, we're hoping in the future that we'll be actually be able to make hay properly. At the moment, we're just disposing of, of what we're cutting. Um, but we have a farmer interested and we have um, a potential uh, connection with Bath City Farm. Um, they may be interested, but that that may be um, that may be a little early to say. I guess the other biggest single activity has been planting saplings. We've planted 3,500 saplings in the last three years, some of it to enhance hedgerows, but roughly half of that number has gone into what we call tiny forests, which we'll tell you more about. Um, and uh, in addition now, we're one of a number of community nurseries. So instead of bringing saplings in from far away, the north of England or even Scotland, where charities are willing to provide them for us as part of their own decarbonisation objectives. We now are growing 700 saplings from seeds at a time in our own nursery on the site. And we do that in conjunction with more trees, banes. Uh, and the idea is that they collect seeds locally. Um, they vernalise them, which is a process by which they um, get put them in cold conditions so that they will um, germinate. They then bring to us the tiny saplings, which are usually no more than, I don't know, 50 mil, uh, 100 mil high. Um, then we grow them on. We sort of fatten them up over the summer. And then they take them away and distrib distribute those to other sites. And we will, of course, take some for ourselves. My goodness. I mean, it sounds like you're incredibly busy. Um I, I don't know if you have time for 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 all of it. Uh, I, I want to come back to the tiny forests in a second, but first, you said about, I mean the haymaking sounds incredible and sort of like a lovely way to um, keep alive those sort of old traditions that obviously we don't use as much in modern farming because there's, you know, I'm sure more more efficient so to speak ways of doing it. Um, but you said about sort of needing to reduce the fertility of the grass, um, but that actually makes it better for the wildflowers. Can you talk a bit more about that? 
Yes, it's the, the, the problem with with grasses, especially modern ones, that they're bullies. Um, and so what happens is it's not that the wildflowers don't like fertile ground. It's just that they um, are always being pushed out by the modern grasses. So what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, make sure that the grasses are less vibrant. And there are a number of methods of doing that. Um, we're using basically the cutting and then um, raking. And then uh, later on in the year, we actually expose the, the soil to um more seeds falling down on onto the onto the ground but the other thing we're doing is we're planting something called yellow rattle or hay rattle uh which is um a very strange plant because it actually predates on the um roots of uh, native grass or grasses so it actually creates if you can imagine a, a space around it which is clear of grass and uh, that's when the uh, wildflowers take their opportunity and move in that's incredible. I didn't. I never thought about that of like modern grasses being bullies and taking up all the the space. But that, um, yeah, there you go. The more you learn. Um, so now tell me about this. The tiny forests you're doing. That sounds like a lot of work. Would you say three thousand five hundred saplings so far? It's about fifteen hundred of the saplings. Uh, saplings have been put into three tiny forests. Tiny forests are actually quite an old idea. I mean, not old in in ge- geological time, but um they the basic theory was developed by someone called akira miyawaki uh who was a botanist in japan or is a botanist in japan uh who was looking at ancient um shinto temple sites in northern japan and he was looking at what trees were naturally occurring um and he discovered that there was a huge biodiversity and that the trees that were growing were growing very, very close to each other. Now, ancient um, ancient forests are initially, or essentially, are uh, forests that have not been planted. So they're ones that occur naturally. Um, and he came up with a method where you um, mimic that process, but you do it very, very quickly. Um, so what happens is that uh, an area of land is cleared, then um trees are planted but their trees the trees or the saplings are planted much much closer than you would normally expect in a in a forest so we've been planting at two and a half per square meter um we've got up to five per square meter which means basically the trees are about um 500 mil or 18 inches apart what then happens is that we nurture them for the first three years uh, replace any that have uh, failed and we have a small failure rate and after that um, they're on their own um, and people will ask well do you do you thin them out afterwards and the answer is no so the trees will grow very tall um, they will grow very efficiently because they're shading each other so we we retain moisture um, and um, they will set up mycorrhizal um, connections between each other because they're so close to each other. So they tend to grow much faster and much taller than a normal forest would do. They won't produce huge trees of massive girth, but what they will produce is something that's much more akin to what you'll see in the wild. Um, the other thing that we've done and we've discovered is that the major um, threat to tiny trees is a lack of water we've had two or three really quite tough summers 
because although people think it's rained a lot this summer, it hasn't. Um, there's not very much volume. And so we've had to actually uh, create water collection devices that we uh, hopefully will fill over the winter. And then we can use for um, watering the, the trees in the in the lean times of midsummer. So now I've got 5,000 litres of water storage. 5,000 litres of water All rainwater. And we can pump it to anywhere that we need to for those tiny forests. That's correct. My goodness. Typically, the, the tiny forest sites we've cleared are approximately the size of a tennis court. Some are slightly bigger, some are slightly smaller. And within that size of a tennis court, if you can visualise that, typically 600 saplings. 600 at two and a half per square metre. Or at the higher density we've now tried. And it's interesting, having three forests that are three years apart, you really can see what year one, year two, year three looks like. The tallest trees now are three metres high. Some are four. And they're all native species, but we mix them up. So within one, any one of the three sites, we've got 20... 28, 28 I think, and 28 species. All native varieties. That's incredible, goodness. And the amount of research that's gone into this. I mean, are you, are you guys... Is, is your background in biodiversity and sort of tree management, or is this something you've had to learn as you go or gather from experts? I mean, it's incredible. That's the core of what we do, which is um, between us, Chris and I have absolutely no background in this <laughs> whatsoever. However, if we don't know, we know how to find out. Um, we use Uncle Google quite a lot. Uh, we talk to lots of people. Um, and it's actually one of the, the lessons of all of this is that you do learn by doing um, we have read some stuff and then tried it out and thought, hmm, that hasn't worked for us and other things. And we've made lots of mistakes along the way. But the worst thing that can happen is you plant something like any garden will tell you, and it just doesn't thrive. But we've learned very, very quickly. Um, and we've also found that um, we've come up with practical solutions that really are, are not available um in, in terms of um, books or research, because a lot of this research has been done, has been done after the fact, rather than this is how we did it. So um, no, we don't have a background in it. Um, we do refer to, we do have plenty of volunteers who know something about what, what we're doing, and they have a, a lot of input, but the essential things that we've done, we, we've just researched ourselves. So the, the message is, if you don't know how to do it, well, there's, it's not that difficult to find out. You've also noticed that there are ways not to do it. There are sites not far from here where council or somebody else has planted saplings but then hasn't followed up with any kind of monitoring or nurturing, let alone watering. And, you know, you can all of that effort can go to waste if you don't have sufficient follow-up. We've got um, no more than 6% failure rate. In fact, our first tiny forest had only about 3% failure rate which people say is amazing, but it's because we really have, we've mulched the soil, prepared the soil well. That's that's hard work because the sites we were choosing were previously covered with brambles and blackthorn and uh, other, other fibrous plants. So getting all those roots out was the first thing to do. And that, that was really hard work. Then uh, following up with, with leaf, leaf mulch and watering as necessary, as I say, replacing the few that do fail. Um, We've also noted elsewhere the charities who will offer to, to build you something of this kind for, say, £25,000. Um, so there are people out there who are actually trying to make some money out of spot sponsoring trees. Well, in fact, all of our saplings have come to us free of charge because I say there are charities who are willing just to give them. 
and the labor has all been produced free of charge so virtually we we, we do this for at no cost whatsoever or absolutely minimum minimal cost we're very very um, one of our objectives is never to waste anything we always use recycled materials if we can and uh, we don't like to see anything go to waste the other thing I'd, I'd say is anybody listening to this, if they're interested in, in just coming along and having a look or talking about what we've done and how it's worked or how it hasn't worked, please do. Uh, because if there had been someone like us when we started, we could have saved ourselves an awful lot of time and um, and the heartache, I think. Yeah, so anyone listening who wants to get in touch, find Friends of Lincoln Hill Fields on Facebook or on the website i'm aware of time but i mean i want to quickly ask you firstly i mean that sounds really encouraging as you say you don't need to be an expert to start with you just need to sort of be willing to learn and put the effort in um but i want to ask you as well about the educational links you've got in the community and sort of what how, how this is feeding into local education yes we have a a local um, primary that's a junior and a, an infant school uh, just down the road from us and we contacted them I think within about a year of when we started um, and we've had a series of um, planting sessions and the planting sessions have been effectively funded by Bath in Bloom so they've uh, bought the plants for us um, and children come up and it's usually groups of 60. Uh, they come up, they do a bit of planting. We take them for a walk around the site, uh, showing them things. Interestingly, uh, when we take them to the tiny forests and I explain to them things like um, the mycorrhizal connections and the wood wide web and how um, you don't have to plant these things um, an arm's length apart, they all get it. Uh, you talk to um, older people, they want to dispute <laughs> dispute the theory with you very quickly. The other thing is they play games and they do searches for things. And we've done this uh, for the last three years, I suppose. We've got a very good relationship with the local school. It's part of their forest school network. And a lot of the children, believe it or not, even though we're about a mile away, have never been up to the fields before. And they then bring their parents and say, oh, look, this is what we planted. This is where we were working. Um, so it's a, it's a really nice relationship. And, and the volunteers are all queuing up to be part of those sessions because um, it's just a joy to see the, the, the faces of the children, really. We've also had students from four local secondary schools, boys and girls, mainly year 10, year 11, but mainly doing their bronze. This is the volunteering module of their Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. But we've got one now who's doing silver. We've got one who's done gold. And um, the, 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 the one who's done gold actually is now planning a, a career in environmental work of one sort or another. So that's another very good way into the schools. And beyond that, now you're in touch with the universities, Maurice. Uh, yeah, Bath University and Bath Spa are both have both shown some interest. Bath Spa, I think, as part of one of their courses, because of, as as one of their lecturers said, there are not many sites like this, and having one down the road is is perfect for them. I was um, I was going to come back to the thing about volunteering. Why people volunteer is uh, there as many reasons as there are people. And quite a few of our volunteers, this is um, a source of friendship. Um, and for others, it's um, helpful to their mental health. And for other people, they just want to go and do something that's physical and get some exercise. Um, for other people, they're just interested in biology or 
um, botany or um, bird watching, um, summer photographers. So what people get from the from the volunteering really depends on them. And we're very happy to have volunteers who come every week, uh, once a month, once a year. It's it's up to you. So there, there are no minimum or maximum requirements here. Starting in COVID year was a crucial um, bonus, really, because when we started, the rule of six was in, in place. But working out of doors, you know, even a group of six is quite a big group. So lots of opportunities for people to come and uh, and do this work and to to socialize without without any risk to their health during that uh, that uh, unusual year that we all had to live, live through and that did give us a flying start we've also um, with the benefit of ideas from um, some of our most experienced volunteers who are now we call them site leaders tried to make it a very social activity so in our two-hour morning sessions on Wednesdays and Sundays, we now normally provide tea, coffee, biscuits. Somebody makes a cake. Um, <laughs> we have uh, an, an annual Christmas dinner for volunteers and their partners. And we have an annual uh, autumn harvest celebration, which is really to celebrate the end of the mowing season, when we have a, a picnic in, in one of the fields and the directors provide the drinks and uh, we have a bring and share lunch and a, and a live a, musician, a live musician, a singer songwriter to give us a nice uh, gentle music on a summer's afternoon, autumn S- afternoon. Sounds, sounds idyllic. Goodness. Well, I mean, sign me up for the, for the food anyway. That sounds great. Um, Amazing. Well, I'm I'm really aware of time in that. And you're both very busy people with plenty to do. I'm sure there's some, grass that needs cutting or something and um, so the f- they're friends of Lincoln Hill Fields so Lincoln is spelt L-Y-N-C-O-M-B-E and it's near Alexandra Park in Bath so it's really close to Bath city centre as well as the crow flies it's up maybe a bit of a hill um, is that so and if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that if they want to find out more? Website is best, I think, um, because that's that, that that tends to send a link to our email address, and then we'll deal with um, applications straight away. Uh, it's, it's it's just a um, a few a few things to to clarify insurance and all that sort of thing, and then we're we're off and running. Lovely. So, friends of Lincoln Hill Fields. So, people just search that online; they can find it. Find you'll website. find that on Google. We're on Google Business. You'll you'll see our name will come up on your on your Google page almost immediately. Lovely. Is, is there any final any final messages you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, come and try it. Worst comes to the worst. You think mm, not for me. Um, you you will gain lots of things and um the other thing that we haven't mentioned is um the environment itself um the fields are on the east and south side of beach and cliff and the views are a million dollars it sounds it sounds gorgeous and it also sounds like you say you've got so much um sort of already gained so much experience that for anyone wanting to try and set up something similar this sounds you sound like a great group of people to talk to to find out what's you know what's already happened and sort of the best the best methods that you're using um and yeah what any any wishes for what you would like to see happen in 2024 for the Lincoln Hill fields well i was going to say uh, my wish is that more more sites like ours we really are well on the way to creating a wild hilltop paradise we're always happy to show people around 
And even better if people come along to one of our two-hour sessions on the mornings, 10 till 12 normally, Wednesdays or Sundays. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much, Chris and Morris, for joining us. And yes, if you want to find out more about any of that, please do look for Friends of Lincoln Hill Fields on online. Thank you both very much for coming in. Thank you.